and we are live everyone uh, welcome to episode 1 of ask abhijit it's great to see you all thank you for being here and uh, before i begin i would like to express my gratitude to all of you for your support uh, i've been a very reluctant youtuber thus far i have made like 3 videos in 2 years but you have all been uh, subscribing and supporting me and uh, giving amazing comments so i would like to thank you all from the bottom of my heart of, of my heart i truly appreciate your support so i have decided to um, i have a bunch of questions that you have already asked me uh, ask abhijit hashtag uh, i've got about more than 600 questions thus far so i'm going to answer a few of these i won't be able to answer all of them but i'll try my best to answer as many as i can so I will first answer some questions that you have already asked and later I will take some live questions as well. So that's the format that I'm going to follow today. So let's begin with question number one. And question one is, is it true that there was no concept of India or one nation before our independence? And India was just divided into many kingdoms that would keep fighting each other. For example, the Rajputs. So it's a good question. Uh, is India was India a nation in the past? No, India was not a nation. The concept of nation and nation state is a very new concept. It's just 300 years old, approximately three or 400 years old. India has always been a civilization. So there's a vast difference between a civilization and a nation. A nation is a small or large geographical entity that is sovereign. A civilization is much bigger than that. A civilization has a common culture. It can have numerous smaller nations within it. And yet it is one single entity. So that's what India has always been. At times, India has been unified under a single empire. For example, the Mauryan Empire, the Gupta Empire, uh, Shivaji's Empire, Tanishka's empire, etc. So there were times when India was completely unified and its geographical extent went much more than the current political boundaries of India. And there were times when India was a bunch of fragmented kingdoms and it was still one single civilization. So India has always been something greater than a nation. India has always been a civilization. So before India's independence in 1947, India was a civilization. In 1947, what happened is that India became a nation state and that to a truncated one. So 1947 was a watershed in India's history. It became diminished from a civilization to a nation. So historically, India has been a civilization. Now, yes, India's uh, kingdoms would fight each other from time to time. It wasn't always the case. Whenever you had a number of kingdoms, there would be inter-kingdom rivalries for sure. And when you would have a large empire under one single emperor, then there would be no such rivalries. So history is a cyclical process. And that's what India has seen because India's history is so, so ancient. India has thousands of years of history. So you see these cycles over and over, these historical, historical cycles. You had empires, you had kingdoms, you had the Mahajanapadas, the, the great republic states, and so on. So that is the answer. India has always been a civilization. A nation is something that is much smaller in scope than a civilization. So today India is diminished. It is a nation and uh, one would aspire that 
India should be a civilization, civilization again, a civilization state. So hopefully that's something that will happen in the future. But as of now, India as a nation, historically, it's always been a civilization, despite having so many different languages and so many local manifestations of this single unifying culture. So that's the answer to the question. It's a great question. Let's go to question number two. So this is by Hardik Bagde. Can you explain about the battle fought between Alexander and Porus, the battle of Hydaspes? Was King, King Porus a descendant of the Puru dynasty? Why is there no Indian textual evidence of this? Great question again. So whenever you have a conflict between two sides, between two parties or two nations or two cultures, then in order to get a good understanding of what truly happened, it behooves historians to look at what both sides have to say about it. So the history that we are taught today is of Alexander's invasion of India. He was a great king. He conquered everything. He came to India and he defeated this great, brave king Porus. And then his soldiers rebelled against him. And they said that we are very tired. We have been away from home for so many years. We want to go back. And so Alexander acquiesced to the demands of his army. And that's why he went back. But he was victorious in India. And he could have gone further ahead if he wished to. So this is the history. This is the narrative that is taught to us. And this is an entirely Greek narrative. This is what the Greek historians have written about Alexander and his uh, supposed conquest of India. The strange thing is that Indian sources from that time are completely silent about Alexander. They do not mention Alexander at all, which is very strange, isn't it? If, if such a great conqueror came to India's western doorstep, then how come there is no Indian mention of this great invader, Alexander? And this battle, of the, which is supposed to have happened uh, at, at the banks of the river Jhelum, this battle happened in Punjab, in, in the Sapta Sindhu region. And the strange thing is that one of India's greatest universities of all time, Takshashila, also happened to be in Punjab, which is right next door, essentially, to the site of the battle. And this is a, one of the greatest universities of all time. You had so many professors of all kinds of different subjects, including uh, current affairs, political science, history, science, and whatnot. So if such an enormous and momentous battle happened right next door to Takshashila, how come none of India's scholars recorded this event and wrote some commentary or some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of record about it? How come there is no record of this battle at all? And how come there is no record of Alexander at all? And how come there is no Indian record of this king called Porus? Why is that so? And the strange thing is that after Alexander died, his general Seleucus Nicator became the overall king of the Greeks. And he again tried to invade India. And he entered eventually into an alliance with our emperor Chandragupta Maurya. So Indian records mention Seleucus Nicator extensively. And Seleucus Nicator is, is the king who comes right after Alexander. So it's just a question of a decade or so. And yet there is no mention of Alexander in Indian sources. So if one were to take this logically, it, it would indicate that Indian sources and Indian historians and Indian and the Indians of that time 
either did not take any notice of Alexander or they considered him to be not worthy of writing about, which would essentially tell you that his invasion was no big deal. And it would essentially tell you that this king Porus that he supposed supposed to have defeated must have been a very small king of some western outpost of India's boundary with Persia. So the Greeks talk about Porus like he was some great king who had a vast kingdom, but there is no mention of Porus in Indian texts. And so it would indicate that he was a minor king, a minor chieftain of a, of a border outpost of India. So the fact that there is no mention of Alexander or Porus at all in Indian sources would indicate that the story is very different from what the Greeks have told us. And that's the story that we we learn about in our textbooks worldwide, including in India. So the Russian marshal, the, the great Russian marshal Zukov, who was one of uh, Russia's great mili military strategists, wrote about this. And he said that what really happened was that Alexander probably lost to this minor border chieftain, Porus. And the Greek sources later embellished the story and invented a story of Alexander defeating Porus and being forced back by the actions of his own soldiers. So I, I wonder why Indian historians have never taken up this angle. They have just blindly imbibed whatever the Greek historians have written about and whatever the Western historians write about. So I think it is time to look at India's history afresh because the story doesn't quite add up when it comes to Alexander's supposed invasion of India. What I believe happened is that he came to Western India. He tried to invade India. He had this ambition of invading India. He ran into a small border chieftain. And because this guy had elephants and uh, all that, that's why I believe that Alexander suffered a defeat in this skirmish with the Indian king. And we know that his horse died in this battle. And it is most likely that Alexander also got grievously injured in this battle with the Indians. And he had to go back to Babylon where he died. So I think that is the is, is what really transpired. We should not believe the Greek sources blindly. Because it is well known that Greek sources have been known to embellish and invent history. Herodotus, the father of history, the supposed father of history, is known to have invented fictitious lands and fictitious people, people with three heads and people with uh, three eyes and whatnot. And this is accepted as history today somehow. So it is time to revisit the history of India and revisit it from our own eyes and our own perspective. So that is what I really believe transpired when it comes to Alexander's supposed invasion of India. I think he suffered a calamitous loss in India and it eventually led to his death. So good question. The next question is, can there be possibilities of life existing without oxygen? And is it also possible that many planets have living organisms? So yes, it is definitely possible for life to exist without oxygen. If you look at the early history of our own planet, then before, if you go back to before about two billion, two and a half billion years before the present, then there was almost no oxygen in our atmosphere. And yet we had life. And what happened was that there was this Kind of the species of bacteria called cyanobacteria that developed the that evolved and developed the the ability to 
do photosynthesis, which means that they, they were able to create energy out of sunlight. And the outcome of photosynthesis, the outcome, the output of that reaction is oxygen. So gradually, these bacteria started producing oxygen in the atmosphere, that oxygen was released in the atmosphere. And that's how the earth slowly became oxygenated. And once it crossed a certain threshold, it led to a mass uh, extinction of a lot of the species that were on earth. Because at that time, oxygen was actually poisonous to most of the species on our planet. So this is called the Great Oxygen Disaster, the Great Oxidation Catastrophe or the Oxygen Holocaust. You can look it up. Um, the information is available online. So yes, our own planet harbored life, which survived without oxygen and for whom oxygen was actually a poison. So there are lots of different biochemistries of life that, that uh, support life without the presence of oxygen. So, so that's what we had on our planet as well. So yes, life is definitely possible without oxygen. Now, to the second part of the question, is it possible that many planets have living organisms? Definitely. I think that there could be microbial life inside our own solar system itself. Because there, we know that there is water on certain moons around Jupiter and Saturn. And there are lots of uh, hydrocarbons. There's the presence of organic hydrocarbons that are supportive, that, that, that form the building blocks of life on Earth. These uh, hydrocarbons are found on comets, on meteorites, and on many of these moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And uh, there are moons that have subsurface oceans. Uh, Europa is one example. Uh, Enceladus, I believe, Ganymede. And uh, Titan, the moon of Saturn, also has very interesting uh, chemistry. And it has a very thick atmosphere. So I believe, and, and even Mars, I mean, we know that Mars was once a very wet planet and we know that there is water below the surface in Mars. And sometimes you even see water flowing on the surface of Mars. So there is definitely the potential for microbial life, microorganisms on Mars and on these various other moons of our own solar system. So I believe it's quite likely that there could be life inside our own solar system outside of Earth. So that's the first thing. And I think that life in this form could exist in abundance across our galaxy and across the universe. And I am pretty much certain that there should be intelligent life as well. Intelligence that is on par with our intelligence or maybe it even exceeds our intelligence. We have so many stars in our own galaxy. I think approximately 400 billion stars. And we know that planets are very common. Almost every star system that we know of has been found to have at least a couple of planets. And there are billion, I would say there are trillions of galaxies in the observable universe. So if you add that all up, there are so many planets and so many possibilities of life. And I would say that the odds are that they, that intelligent life should also be quite common in the universe. So yes, I believe, I'm, I'm pretty sure that life exists outside our planet and even intelligent life may exist. So, that's the answer to this question. Next question. Can you please, this is Sunny Negi. Can you please explain what is the Higgs boson particle and what's the Higgs field? Right, so the best theory of, of physics that we have thus far is called quantum field theory. So according to this, according to this theory, everything that we observe is essentially an illusion 
reality as we know it is made up of fields and disturbances in these fields. So there is a photon field, there is a proton field, there is an electron field, and these fields permeate the entire universe. It's the same field everywhere. And these particles, protons, neutrons, electrons, etc., are merely localized disturbances in these fields. And it is the, the interaction of these various disturbances in the fields and the other, other fields and it is, it is the interaction that causes the forces that we experience, the force, the forces of uh, electromagnetism, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force, and so on. So the entire universe is essentially comprised of fields. There are 17 fields in all. That's the standard model of physics. And there are four bosons. So, so the, the 17 particles are, there are six uh, quarks, there are six, uh, leptons and you have uh, four bosons and the bosons are the carriers of the forces. So according to this theory, all of these bosons should be massless. But we find that uh, the W and Z bosons, the mediators of the, weak, of the weak force, actually have mass. And so to explain the fact that these bosons have mass, a new particle had to be theorized. It was in the 1960s, I believe, that Peter Higgs and a couple of other physicists postulated, hypothesized that there exists one more boson, one more particle whose interaction with the other particles endows those particles with mass. And that is the Higgs boson. So it is the interaction of all these different fields and particles with the Higgs boson field that imbues them with mass. So certain particles interact more strongly with the Higgs field, so they are more massive. Certain particles interact less strongly with this field, so they are less massive. And particles such as the photon don't interact with the field at all. That's, what, that's why they are massless. So that is the Higgs boson and the Higgs field. And this uh, particle was the last particle of the standard model to be discovered. It was discovered in the year 2012 in the Large Hadron Collider. And Physicists, particle physicists had, had been searching for it for a very, very long time. Uh, journalists called it the God particle and particle physicists called it the goddamn particle because it was so hard to find. So it's been found finally a few years ago. And so that's what it is. That's what the Higgs boson is. And that's what the Higgs field is. It's what gives the universe and its particles mass. So that's why we exist. If there was no mass, then we would not exist. And the universe would be a very different place. So that is the Higgs boson in the Higgs field. Next question. So this is by Akash Puller. What's your opinion about the recent findings hinting at the man-made origins of the coronavirus in a Chinese lab? And is this virus a bioweapon? So for a very long time, we have been told that this is a natural virus. It evolved naturally. It came from bats, supposedly, in the wet market in Wuhan. But what we find is that bats are unable to <laughs> be infected with, the, with this virus. So clearly, it's not come from bats. And we have been told to follow the science, follow the science. But the fact is that the people who talk the most about science online are the ones who know the least about science. And it's not about following the science. It's about following who benefited from this pandemic. This is a geopolitical matter. It's not a scientific matter. If you create a virus in a lab and release it in the world, you're going to make sure 
that you're going to erase all traces of its origin. And therefore, science will not be able to find the source because you have erased it. And therefore, this is not a matter of science. It's a, it's a matter of following the money. Who has benefited the most from this pandemic? So the numbers are very clear. If you look at the numbers of the past year or so, you will find that the entire world's GDP has been shrinking. India's GDP has shrunk by about 7% or so. The US GDP has shrunk. The UK GDP has shrunk. Every major economy in the world has seen a shrinkage of its GDP or maybe a very small, tiny growth of the GDP, but nothing like it was supposed to be. Now, if we look at China's GDP, I have recently found that it has grown by 18% over the last year. So over the past decade or so, China's GDP was growing at less than 10%. But suddenly it has seen this spurt of 18%. So how did China manage to achieve such an enormous spurt of growth while everybody else has seen a shrinkage in the GDP? So clearly, China has benefited from this pandemic. And to a great extent, they've been able to place a lot of distance between them and the rest of the competition. So I believe that this is a man-made virus. It was designed by China and it was released uh, strategically. For example, uh, in 2020, you had these Chinese tourists in Italy who were saying that I am Chinese, I'm not a virus, please hug me. And uh, the poor Italians would go and hug them out of compassion because they are afraid of being called racist or whatever. And that's how this virus spread. And China had already banned travel within China, but they were allowing people to travel outside of China. And if you look at China's history over the past 10, 20 years, you will say that whenever there is an outbreak of a, of a virus in Africa, for example, the Ebola virus outbreak in, 20, in the early 2010s, then the Chinese would send scientists to these locations, ostensibly to provide aid for humanitarian purposes. But what they were actually doing was they were collecting samples of these exotic viruses. And these samples go back to China and they are analyzed and they are tested. And I presume something else is also, is also done with these samples of viruses. So the Chinese have amassed a great library of various viruses and they have been testing them and doing various, various things with these viruses. So I am not surprised that they have released this virus. This, this, the current coronavirus is thankfully not that virulent. It's not that deadly. If it was the Ebola virus, which would have been released, the consequences would have been catastrophic. So I am pretty certain that this is an engineered outbreak. This is a bioweapon. Uh, we all thought that 2020 was the year of the virus. I am getting the feeling that the 2020s are the decade of the virus. I hope I'm wrong, but let's see. But I am pretty sure that this is not a natural virus. And, and now the US government is also kind of publicly saying that there is something more to this virus than a natural origin. So the truth is coming out now. For a long time, the Western media did not speak about this. They acted like agents of the Chinese. Um, they were concentrating on India. They were talking about how many cases are in India. They were uh, concentrating on the cremations that are happening in India. And they were not questioning the Chinese who are not releasing any numbers of how many cases they've had and how many deaths they've had. The Chinese have released no numbers at all for the past year. And the Western media has not deemed it fit to question the Chinese. And they are concentrating on India. So it's clear that the, that the Western media has been bought out by the Chinese. It's very clear. I, I don't think there's any doubt at all. And uh, 
even Facebook was censoring posts that uh, raised questions about the origins of the virus. So I'm glad it's coming out in the open now. And uh, I hope that the world takes adequate measures to preclude further occurrences of such releases, releases of, of man-made viruses. So I, I am pretty convinced that this is a man-made bioweapon. Next question. Okay, this is by Piyush Singh. Have you seen the documentary, The Phenomenon, which talks about UFOs and extraterrestrial sightings? The US is also going to declassify some info. What are my thoughts about UFOs and extraterrestrial sightings? And it being confirmed by many individuals and decorated government and military officers across the world. So these um, <clears throat> confirmations are mostly from US government sources and US military sources. So, you know, like I said earlier, I am convinced that there is extraterrestrial life in our own solar system and outside. I'm convinced that there are intelligent aliens as well in various star systems around the world, around the universe. But I am not sure that they have visited us. We still don't have enough data. You will see that there is no scientist who is making any comments about this. No scientist is commenting about this. And the reason is that we don't have sufficient data to come to any kind of uh, proper conclusion about the about the origin of these extraterrestrial sightings. So let me explain what I mean by this. Let's say that the US government declares that rainbows don't exist. Then your, your reaction is going to be, what nonsense? We know that rainbows exist. We have all seen rainbows. They have been documented to exist. There are so many photographs and videos of rainbows worldwide. So there is documentary evidence and a massive amount of documentary evidence that rainbows exist. And I have seen one myself. So you are lying. Rainbows do exist. Now, what if the US government says that comets don't exist? Then again, your reaction will be, but we know that comets exist. We have seen comets. Some of us have seen comets. Comets, And astronomers have been describing comets, observing comets for centuries. And in the 20th century onwards, we have a massive amount of photographic and video evidence of comets taken by thousands of astronomers and non-astronomers worldwide. So there's a massive amount of evidence, irrefutable evidence, that comets exist. Now the US government is saying that UFOs exist and here is our footage. And you will find that this is black and white footage, very grainy. It's hard to make out what it is. And they say that this footage comes from um, US Air Force and US Navy cameras. So my question, I have two questions. First of all, why do these UFOs make themselves apparent? Why do these UFOs reveal themselves only to US government and US military sources? Why is that? And secondly, the US military has the world's greatest and latest technology. So why are they releasing only grainy black and white videos? I am sure that they have extremely high definition video capabilities in their military planes, in their aircraft. So why are only grainy black and white images being released? What is the, what is the reason for that? And why are these aliens showing themselves only to the US government? Why are there no UFO sightings in Mumbai? Why are there no UFO sightings in Berlin, in Beijing, in Tokyo? 
Why is it always, and why is there no UFO sighting in Manhattan where thousands of people can see it at the same time and photograph it and video and take videos? Why are there no multiple source sightings of UFOs? Why, it is, why is it always the US government and the US military? So that is what makes me extremely skeptical about these UFO claims. So I, you know what, when I was a kid, I was fascinated with UFOs. But as I grew up and I and I became a scientist, I realized that we do not have sufficient evidence to make a decision one way or the other, whether they exist or not. Clearly, there are unexplained aerial phenomena that are cited from time to time. Some of these have been explained. Some of them are still unexplained. But these releases of videos by the US government, they look like plants to me. It's to cre I, I feel that it's to create a certain kind of narrative, which has a long term political or geopolitical objective. So I am extremely, extremely skeptical, skeptical about the current rash of UFO disclosures that the US government is made uh, government is making. I am not at all convinced about these claims. Right? Okay, next question. What is the difference between an astronomer and an astrophysicist? This is by Aniket Raj. So an astronomer is somebody who observes celestial events, who observes the planets and the stars and the constellations and uh, records the data of these observations. So it is an observational science and an observational art. That's what astronomy is. You don't need to be a physicist to be an astronomer. It helps to understand physics. But in the past, people have been doing astronomy for thousands of years without understanding the laws of physics, because thousands of years ago, we did not have the knowledge that we have today. So astronomy is an observational art and an observational science. Astrophysics, on the other hand, is about taking this observational evidence and the observational data and applying the laws of physics as we know them to this data to understand the nature of the universe, to understand what drives things like star formation and the deaths of stars and the evolution of stars, what drives the formation and evolution of galaxies and nebulae, and essentially what is the nature of the universe and all of that. So it involves physics. It also involves some amount of chemistry. And astrobiology involves the understanding of biology as well. So that is the difference between an astronomer and an astrophysicist. An astrophysicist is somebody who is a, a trained physicist and who applies the laws of physics to understand the universe better. So that is the fundamental difference. One is, an one is an observational science and art. The other one is about analysis and, uh, and deduction. And, and it, you take the observations and you analyze them and you put forth theories and models of various phenomena that you observe. So that is what astrophysicists do. Next question. This is by Akshat Chobe. What is my opinion about the one China policy? And should India continue to accept it? Yeah, that's a good question. So the Chinese say that China is one entity, one nation, and nobody should question it. And everybody should agree to the Chinese perception of what their geographical boundaries are. So China has invaded and occupied and annexed Tibet 
we should accept it. They are now claiming the South China Sea. We should accept it. In the future, God forbid, they should they would they want to they want to invade and capture Arunachal Pradesh, and uh, they would like the world to accept is accept it as part of China. So there is a concept called reciprocity in international relations. I will honor your wishes if you honor mine, and India also should have a one India policy which which includes the entirety of Jammu and Kashmir, including Aksai Chin. It should include the whole of Arunachal Pradesh, which is already under our jurisdiction, and it will remain under our jurisdiction. And we would like China to adhere and respect, adhere to and respect our our geographical boundaries. And they refuse to do that. They do not want to respect our geographical claims, but they want us to accept their geographical claims, and their geographical claims are always expanding. They have territorial disputes with almost all of their neighbors, Japan, Japan, and Russia as well. The Russian dispute is right now under the carpet. It will soon pop up again. It pops up from time to time in the Chinese media, and with every other, with almost every other uh, nation that uh, has a common border with China. So they have this expansionist, hegemonic tendency. and they want to keep expanding the territories and they want us to accept that one china policy so my stand is very simple we should accept their one china policy if they accept the one india policy and they if they accept the geographical boundaries of india as we have always known them to be essentially china has no business being in tibet or at the border of india see china has existed as a separate civilization as an independent Civilization for the past two and a half or three thousand years, and India has been around for ten thousand years or more, and India and China have never had a common boundary until the past say of sixty or seventy years. So this border tension is a very new thing, and it is something that the Chinese Communist Party has created out of thin air. India and China have historically never had any sort of conflict ever. So the so the Chinese Communist Party has created this conflict by capturing Tibet and then laying claims on Indian territory. So if the Chinese want India to accept their one China policy, they should first quickly agree to a proper border demarcation, and they should accept our historical, long-standing, millennia-old geographical boundaries, and then we can think of. accepting their so called one china policy so that is what i believe we the world needs to stand up against china and stand together against china china is china's rise is not at all peaceful china doesn't believe in a peaceful rise it, it believes in continuous and perpetual expansion whether it's the expansion of its borders the expansion of its economy mercantilism expanding into other poor countries and 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 uh, laying debt traps upon them like they've done to sri lanka and many african countries so it's an expansionist hegemonic power and it does not wish the world well so it may not be resorting to military violence at this stage but it is clearly not a not a nation that wishes well upon the world so i would say that the world should stand up against china and this one china policy should be accepted only if china ceases these 
expansionist and hegemonic ambitions of its of of its and uh, if it behaves according to the so called in accepted international laws right next question so this is by aditya can ai take over the world if yes what are the chances of ai taking over humanity and b can we the humans fight artificial intelligence and win right so this has been in the news for quite some time now artificial intelligence because we are making great strides in the progress of this technology we have things like machine learning self learning algorithms neural networks that are growing and learning on their own and so on and so forth so the question is can ai take over the world for ai to take over the world it would first need to become self aware it would need to become aware of the external world it would need to become conscious and it would need to start to understand the difference between itself and the external world so think about when a human being is born they have no awareness of either themselves or the external world it takes several months for them to become aware of their existence as being separate from the existence of the world and it takes time for them many years to understand the world properly to gather information to process that information to start seeing the patterns that recur throughout the world and to make sense of the world overall so it takes many years for a human being to achieve that level of understanding of the world at which they can start making a difference in the world now ais would also need to go through these steps if they become conscious and self aware and for them to take over the world they would need to be able to harness unlimited energy they would be able to they would need to be able to harness unlimited energy and resources and be in charge of decision making processes the the world over only then would they be able to take over the world so i think it's it's going to be a very long time before that happens before ais have access to that level of resources and they have that level of understanding of the world i think it's not going to happen in the next decade at least that ais will become self aware maybe in the next 20 years definitely i would say in the next 50 years ais would become self aware conscious so to say we don't really know what consciousness is but it's possible and my real fear is that it's not the pro the big problem is not that ais will become self aware it's that ais will give certain people certain institutions certain organizations and certain countries almost unlimited power so that is the immediate threat of ai because of these capabilities private corporations have started transcending national boundaries they have started impugning upon national sovereignty the worldwide it's already happening so this is all because of the power of computing and the power of algorithms so that's already happening that is the immediate threat ai is becoming conscious is a threat that is in the future and uh, so the chances do exist but these chances are not immediate maybe in the next 20 to 50 years ai is may be able to pose a genuine threat to human beings if ais actually take over the world then i think that the chance of human beings fighting them back and winning is next to zero so the main thing is we should never allow an artificial intelligence to have access to unlimited resources and to have access to decision making processes 
It should not have decision-making abilities to make changes in the world. And it should not have access to unlimited resources and unlimited power. It should be self-contained and it should be limited in scope. Then only can we keep it under control. If it actually becomes conscious and self-aware and intelligent. So that's the answer. That's my perspective. Next question. Okay, this is by Shubham Pandey. Do you believe that Vikings actually existed? And yes, and if yes, how did such strong men vanish? Vanish, And is Vinland a true place? So yes, of course, the Vikings did exist and they have not vanished. Their descendants are very much alive. Uh, the Scandinavian nations, these are the nations that uh, are home to the descendants of these Vikings. So that's Norway, Denmark, Sweden, to some extent Finland, Greenland, uh, Iceland, and also the United Kingdom, the British Isles, because there were lots of Viking invasions in the British Isles about a thousand years before today. And also France. Because the Normans, the French Normans, were the descendants of these Vikings. So yes, they did exist and they have not vanished. Their descendants are very much present in the world. They are present in Northern Europe and Western Europe. Is Vinland a true place? Yes. So Vinland is most likely uh, the northern tip of Newfoundland, which is uh, an island in northwestern North America. It's part of Canada today. So they have found evidence of Viking of one Viking settlement over there. It's called Los Omedos. So that is clear, irrefutable evidence that there was a Viking presence in North America. They have found one site thus far. I'm sure there are more archaeological sites waiting to be discovered. So it is definitely true that the Vikings crossed the Atlantic Ocean much before Christopher Columbus. They discovered North America. They even settled there. We don't know what happened to the descendants, whether they interbred with the Native Americans and uh, assimilated into the population or whether some sort of misfortune befell them and then they vanished. We don't really know what happened. But yes, they did cross over and they did settle North America for some time at least. Okay, next question. This is by Mohit Pal. Can you explain how quantum is connected in our day-to-day -day life? Right. So how, what is the relevance of quantum physics and the quantum world in our day-to-day -day life? So you see the world that we live in, it emerges out of the microscopic world. The flesh and blood that we have in our bodies, the fabric we wear, the world around us, it is made up of microscopic particles. And all of these particles, these microscopic particles at the atomic and molecular and subatomic level obey the laws of quantum mechanics, quantum physics and quantum field theory. So everything, every phenomenon that we observe in the mundane day-to-day -day world is a phenomenon that emerges from the quantum level. Now, certain quantum phenomena are present to us, are, are observable to the naked eye. For example, if you see a crystal, a crystal of quartz, for example, the crystal structure, the crystalline structure of quartz or any other crystal 
is governed by the laws of quantum mechanics. So that is a quantum, it's a macroscopic quantum object that we can perceive in our daily life. If you look outside the window in the morning and look at the sun, I mean, don't look directly at it, but you see the sunlight, that sunlight comes from the sun. The sun is an enormous nuclear reaction. It's an enormous fusion reaction, which is a quantum process. And a fun fact, every photon of sunlight that emerges out of the sun takes thousands of years to emerge out of the sun, maybe millions of years, because it is absorbed and reabsorbed and emitted and reabsorbed trillions of times inside the sun before it's able to emerge out, out, of, out of the sun's uh, atmosphere. So every photon of sunlight that reaches us was born either thousands or millions of years ago inside the sun, in the interior of the sun. And it takes that much time to traverse the distance from the in interior of the sun to outside of it. So that's a quantum phenomenon. And everything else that we observe emerges out of the quantum domain. The laws of quantum physics are not observable to us to the most part because uh, quantum phenomena either collapse or they decohere and they become classical phenomena, which is the laws of classical physics. So that is the relationship between the quantum world and the ordinary world. The ordinary world emerges out of the quantum world. And uh, it, it, the laws of quantum physics are very non-intuitive. They are very strange. And the paradox is that they give rise to the laws of physics that we know and the which seems so ordinary to us, except the law of gravity, which we still don't understand. So that is how the ordinary world emerges out of the quantum world. That is the relationship. There is a direct relationship between the quantum world and our day-to-day -day world. Next question. So this is by, I don't know. And it says, why is the Indian education system based on ranks? Why is the syllabus outdated? I am 17, a non-science student. I regret why the system is all about marks and ranks. Is there any way left? Will I be able to create tech products through self-study? What advice would you give to me? So I would say that yes, India's education system is obsolete. It is outdated. It still behaves as if we are living in the 19th century. It's based upon marks and ranks and degrees. So the objective of the system was to create clerks. If you have a degree in the education in the Indian education system, it means that you, you are obedient, you don't ask questions, you can write clearly, you can write long essays, and you will make a good clerk. That's essentially all the Indian education system does. It is designed to turn out clerks and peons. It is not designed to turn out leaders or thought leaders or innovators. It crushes your creativity and your intellect and re replaces it with, uh, with, with something very, very different and something that is not conducive to having a good society and a strong society and a strong nation. So I would say that if you are, you should not give up hope because the coming years are going to see the emergence of technologies 
and technology is already permeating the entire world. Today, you don't need to have a job in India. You can have a job anywhere in the world from while sitting at home. So if so it's all about skills, you need to learn skills. If you can, if you can, if you know how to do programming, if you know how to create websites, then you can create a bunch of websites, create a portfolio, advertise it online, and you can get uh, work very well-paying work if you know how to do video editing you will get uh, you will get work as a video editor if you know graphic design if you know audio design audio editing or any of these skills if you know search engine optimization so these are all skills that don't require any degree you can excel at these things without ever needing to earn a degree and when somebody is looking for a programmer they don't look at their degree they look at the kind of work they've done so what you need to do is you need to acquire these skills and you can acquire skills like coding like programming website designing graphic designing you can acquire all these skills online by looking at youtube tutorials and other websites and all of this information is available online for free you just need to look for it so you can acquire all of these skills on your own without anybody's help. And once you have these skills, you need to showcase them in a portfolio. And that will give you the opportunity to earn a great living online from clients throughout the world without ever needing a degree. So, that, so that's what the future holds for us. It's a very good thing. So it's it's increasingly making the Indian education system obsolete. It's also making the global education system obsolete. So it's it's a very good period of time actually for, for people who are skilled. So it's going to make all the degrees obsolete. But right now, this coming decade at least, degrees will still be relevant in India. But they will increasingly fade out of demand. So I would say that you need to acquire these skills, whatever you are good at, whatever you, you feel that you would be good at. Acquire these skills, practice, create a portfolio, advertise the portfolio, and, and you will do well. You will, you will find lots of work online. So that's what the future holds. So you should not feel lost. You should not feel hopeless. There's a lot of hope. Be positive and work on it. All right, next question. This is from Palash. Uh, the question is regarding the origins of our civilization. Gautam Buddha's history is quite well recorded. Yet a Buddha does not drop out of thin air without having a huge preceding history of a highly evolved civilization. When do you think our civilization must have developed stable, advanced societies? So Palash, you are absolutely right. Uh, Somebody like the Buddha does not drop out of thin air. There has to be a long historical precedent and a great deal of socio-cultural and civilizational context. Somebody like the Buddha cannot evolve out of a barbaric, primitive society. Somebody like the Buddha or even Mahavira cannot emerge out of a society which is not highly evolved. So it's clear that the, the Buddha and Mahavira of Jainism, who are, who are believed to be contemporaries, it is clear that these two great souls, these two great individuals, were the outcome of a very ancient civilization, of a civilization that was already very ancient, two and a half thousand years before today. And we know that the Buddha is not the first Buddha. There is, uh, according to Buddhist tradition, there were many Buddhas before the last one, before Siddharth Gautam. 
and even in the Jain tradition, Mahavir is just one of a long line of great Jain Tirthankars. So it's very clear that Indian historical tradition, Itihas, says that India had a very, very long history before the Buddha and before Mahavira. And the Greek historical sources corroborate this because uh, Greek ambassadors who came to the uh, court of our emperor Chandragupta Maurya, they wrote that the Indian calendrical system of that time dated back to at least 6,600 and something BCE. So that is a whole lot of time. That's almost 9,000 years before today. And there were records of lineages and dynasties that stretched all the way back to before 6000 BCE. So that tells you that we have been, our, our ancestors were recording events in our indigenous calendar. They had been doing this for at least 8000 years before today. So it's clear that a, a culture that develops a calendar would have been highly evolved even before that. So that would tell you that Indian culture had been evolving for thousands of years before 6000 BCE. And that's how they were able to mature and create a highly accurate calendar. So I would say that this is evidence that India's civilization is millennia, millennia older than Gautam Buddha and Mahavira. It goes back to at least 6,000, 7,000 BCE. Most likely it is much older than even 10,000 years before today. So we have sufficient evidence from multiple sources, from archaeological sources, calendrical sources, from Greek sources, etc., that all point in the same direction, that India's civilization is extremely ancient. It may well date back to before 10,000 BCE, uh, before 10,000 years before today. So I hope that historical research proceeds in that direction. There is a lot to uncover. We are at the very beginning of, I believe, a new phase of historical research with India as the focus. So it's a very exciting time ahead, and I look forward to that. Next question. This is by Sarthak Vankhede. What if two black holes of equal mass merged? So, if two black holes of equal mass were to merge, let's say both black holes have a mass of 30 solar masses each. So each black hole has 30 solar masses and they were to merge in an in-spiral event. Then what would happen is that they would merge and there would be a single black hole that would emerge out of this merger. And the mass of this new black hole would be less than the total, less than the sum of these two masses. So if you have two black holes of 30 solar masses each, they would expect them to create a black hole of 60 solar masses. But what actually happens is that the new black hole will have three or four solar masses less. So the new black hole would have 56 or 57 solar masses approximately. So the question is, where did this mass go? Where, what, what accounts for this missing mass? And the answer to that is that that missing mass was converted into gravitational energy. When an in-spiral event happens and a merger of two large black holes happens, there it, it, this, this merger gives forth an enormous burst of gravitational waves. It's like an enormous tsunami of gravitational waves. And this tsunami of gravitational waves carries away a lot of energy. So it takes away a lot of the energy of these two black holes, the merging black holes. And we all know Einstein's 
equation, the most famous equation of the, in the world, E equals mc squared. So according to this equation, energy and mass are equivalent. So this energy that was taken away in the form of gravitational radiation is subtracted from the from the mass of the resultant black hole. So that's why the resultant black hole has a mass that is less than the sum total of the masses of the two original parent black holes. So that's what happens when two black holes of equal mass merge. And this is something that's been observed actually. Uh, when the first uh, detection was made of a black hole merger, it was found that the two black holes had uh, masses, uh, that the resultant black hole had a mass that was less than the mass of the two, than the total of the mass of the two original black holes. You can look it up online. Right, next question. This is by Lusna Pradhan, details about Ma Saraswati River. So, the Saraswati River has been an object of great controversy for more than a century. Uh, the first Western records of this river were date back to the 19th century, I believe, or even before that, when British archaeologists and explorers found evidence of a dry riverbed in Western India. And they interviewed many local people and who all told them this ancient story that there was once a great river over here, which was named the Saraswati. And it is it has dried out a long time ago. But we still believe that it is flowing underground or something like that. So these records have been there. They have they date back to the 19th century at least. And these are European records. And there is clear evidence of a great dry riverbed. If you look at Google Earth, so if you know where to look, you will find that there is a great dry riverbed, which is enormous. It's an enormous ancient river, which has dried up. And uh, so this has been an object of great controversy. Western historians and even Indian historians have been denying this for almost a century. They have been denying the, the existence of such a river. They have been calling it a myth. But unfortunately for them, now the scientific evidence is, is too much to ignore. There is incontrovertible evidence of the presence of a great ancient river in Western India. It flowed from the Himalayas all the way to the so-called Arabian Sea. It flowed into the Arabian Sea uh, in the region of present-day Kutch. So this is a very great river. It was greater than all of the other rivers in the Saptasindhu region. It was definitely bigger and wider than the Indus River. And therefore, this ancient phase of our civilization that is called the Harappan phase of India's civilization should actually be called the Saraswati phase of India's civilization because this dry riverbed is exactly where our histories, our itihas says it would be. So it is clearly no, none other than the great ancient Saraswati River. And it has been determined to have dried out about 1500 BCE or thereabouts. And what we find is that there are thousands of unexplored archaeological sites on the banks of this dry riverbed. And there are more ancient archaeological sites on the banks of the Saraswati than on the banks of the Indus. So clearly this was a more significant river than the ancient Indus, Indus River. And what happened was that this river dried out because of climate change. So this so what happened was that in ancient times, the Indian monsoon was much more intense. It was much heavier 
than what it is today. And around 6000 BCE or thereabouts, the Indian monsoon started declining slowly. And the Saraswati River was fed by the monsoons and also by glacial melt from the Himalayas. So because of the because of the decline, the gradual decline of the Indian monsoon, the river started, started drying up over the centuries and the millennia. And it stopped reaching the sea about 1500 years uh, BCE. And even today, some portion of it is still extant in the northern part of India. It's called the Ghaggar Hakra River. It is a seasonal river. It is dry for some months and it is, it is, it flows with some water for some months in the year. So there is no doubt about the evidence of this river. And the, evi- the, the, the fact that this river existed is it, it gives us a very good handle on the date of the Rig Veda. Because according to mainstream history, so-called mainstream history, the Rig Veda was written around 1200 BCE. Now, the fact is that the Rig Veda extensively mentions the Saraswati River and it mentions a great river. It calls it the mother of floods. It calls the Saraswati a loudly roaring river and a river that was prone to flooding very often. It was clearly a great river. It was clearly a much greater river than the Indus. And that is what the Rig Veda has recorded. So clearly... The Rig Veda was written at a time when the river Saraswati was in its prime and not when it was drying out or after it dried out. So that would place the Rig Veda to around 6000 BCE, 8000 years before today and not at 1200 BCE like our so-called eminent historians would like us to to believe. So things are changing. Scientific evidence is dismantling and debunking the colonial narratives of history that we have been learning and we are still learning today. So it's, it's great. So, so the Saraswati River did exist and it is now being written about and it is being uh, papers, scientific research papers are being published about it in very prestigious journals like Nature. So it's now become mainstream. It is now accepted that it existed and it's extremely inconvenient for colonial theories like the Aryan invasion theory and so forth. So that's a brief, it's uh, a brief uh, piece of information about this river. Next question. It is by Sumona De. Can you please speak about the origin of the Bengalis? Are they of Aryan or Dravidian origin? Okay, so Bengal. So Bengal has had a very long history, like the rest of India. Uh, Before the Islamic invasion of Bengal, it was called Vangadesh. So the word Vanga became Banga and it it became known as Bengal eventually. So before the Islamization of large parts of Bengal, it was called Vangadesh or Vanga Pradesh. And the British, when they first reached Bengal, they wrote about it as being the most prosperous province of India. So it was an extremely prosperous, beautiful, bountiful land full of extremely civilized people and very prosperous people. There was a great deal of prosperity, very high living standards. And uh, that's how it was. And the history of Bengal goes back at least 2000 years. Uh, 
there are uh, these archaeological there is this archaeological site called Chandraketugar in Bengal which is more than 2000 years old and it has this beautiful carvings and sculptures of all kinds of uh, uh, social events kings and queens and tournaments and festivals and celebrations and temples so it is a very interesting representation of the life of of ordinary people and other people as well in ancient bengal so this evidence is at least 2000 years old it goes back to around 2300 2400 bce but as with the rest of india there has been almost no archaeological work done in bengal if you were to do that i would i would i am sure that we, the history of bengal would be extended to many thousand years before before today so like the rest of india bengal has had a very long and prosperous history it's only in the past 300 years or so that bengal was ravaged by colonialism it was subjected to repeated famines terrible terrible famines by the british millions of people died each time and it was reduced to poverty and they partitioned bengal in the early 20th century this eventually led to the formation of bangladesh so 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 that's a bit about the origin of bengal and the bengali people now to the question of whether they are aryan or dravidian the bengalis are neither aryan nor dravidian they are indians there is no such thing as aryans and dravidians this is a colonial construction you will see no reference to the to, to dravidians before the before the british came into india you will see no reference to to dravidian people or dravidian lands or dravidian kingdoms in ancient indian literature none of it at all it is a british construction they have tried to link it to some ancient text by twisting some pronunciations of of some words but this is a colonial construction it was designed to divide india and to alienate the north and the south from each other that is why this aryan dravidian divide was constructed and here's what the aryan dravidian divide says it says that the people of northern and western india are the descendants of aryan invaders and the people of southern india are the descendants of dravidians who were the original inhabitants of india so it says that these are two different races these are two different ethnicities it says that these are different genetics this is what the aryan and dravidian theory says that these are two different ethnic groups different races now let me debunk this once and for all let me okay let me open a web page and show it to you just give me a minute please i'm going to show this all right here it is so this is this is a a news item which says that there is this little girl who was born in florida she was 2 years old in 2018 or 2019 and she had leukemia she has leukemia and she needs a rare blood group a very very rare blood type which is found only let me show you uh one second okay this is the one so this is a 2 year old florida girl who is of most likely indian origin and she needs a very very kind of rare kind of blood 
and only people of Pakistani, Indian or Iranian descent are carriers of this compatible blood group and out of those only 4% people. So it says that people of Indian, Pakistani and, Ind and Iranian origin have this blood group and nobody else in the world has it. So what does this tell you? It tells you that the people of India, Iran and Pakistan are the same ethnicity. They are the same race. And when they say India, it means the Indian subcontinent. India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Maldives, etc. So this is proof that the people of the Indian subcontinent and the people of Iran, they are one single ethnicity because this blood type or blood antigen is found only in this particular segment of the world's population. It's not found among Africans. It's not found in Eastern Asian people. It's not found in Europe. It's not found in the Americas or Australia or, or anywhere else, only in the Indian, Indian subcontinent and in Iran. So this, and it does not say that only North Indians are applicable or eligible, or it does not say that South Indians are not eligible. It means that the people of northern India and Iran, who are supposedly Aryans, share this with the people of southern India, who are supposedly Dravidians. Right? So this completely debunks this notion that the people of southern India and the people of northern India are two different ethnicities and two different races. If they share this particular antigen, which is not found anywhere else in the world, it conclusively prove that they are one single race and one single ethnicity. It means there is no Aryan Dravidian divide. We may look different on the outside. Some of us may be taller, some of us may be shorter, some of us may have fair skin, some of us may have darker skin, and yet we are the same ethnicity. Mutaya Murlidharan is the same ethnicity as Imran Khan. Right? That's what it means. We are the same people. So there is no such thing as Aryan or Dravidian. The people of Bengal are Indians. They are neither Aryan nor Dravidian. They are simply Indians. And that is the answer to your question. Okay, next question. Right, this is from Sanchita Mondal. I am a mother of an eight-year-old girl. In this COVID situation, schooling system is broken down. Can you please guide me how in future education system will be and how can we how can small students prepare for the future? So I kind of answered this earlier, but let me go back into that. Small students, students, young students like people who are like kids who are eight years old and thereabouts, they have a very bright future ahead of them because the future of the world is going to is going to be all about technology, it's going to be all about skills. Degrees will very soon become irrelevant. If you have skills like programming, like website design, like uh, graphic design, video editing, search engine optimization, and much more skills such as these, technological skills, then you will be able to prosper in the future world, in the coming world, in, of the coming years. So I would say that a child who is eight years old should have plan A and plan B and both should be executed simultaneously. Plan A is go through the Indian education system, get your degrees, go get your 10th standard degree, 12th standard degree, get a college degree, but also at the same time focus on developing skills, technological skills. All kids are great at technology, especially Indian kids. Indian kids are the most intelligent kids in the entire world. They 
learn technology very naturally right you will find the six month old kids who are you know fiddling around on smartphones so i would say that go through the education system get your 8 year old girl the degrees that are required but also make sure that she gets a good uh good amount of education in developing technological skills because in the future that's what's going to be really relevant so that's that's my short answer the the future is is going to be great we have to stay positive we we should be positive and we should prepare for it properly so this, this is how we do that all right next question <laughs> this is from anshu gupta please explain the law of karma <clears throat> so in physics there are these uh, conservation laws the law of conservation of momentum the law of conservation of mass the law of conservation of charge and so on so now karma is not about physics it's not about science it is something that transcends science karma is about philosophy and spirituality but the law of karma is also a conservation law it is the law of conservations of ac- actions and their merits and demerits across lifetimes it says that the law of karma says that everybody has an immortal soul and that whatever actions you take you perform in a certain lifetime will accrue merits and demerits based on the nature of those actions if you do good things you will accrue merit if you do evil things you will accrue demerits and all of these merits and demerits will be conserved across lifetimes as long as the soul exists and as long as the universe exists so that is the law of karma put very simply it's the law of conservation of the merits and demerits of actions applicable to every soul across lifetimes that's how a physicist like me would see it hope that helps all right next question okay this is by vansh bora how did scientists figure out about the multiverse and is there any proof about it so uh the multiverse theory has numerous origins uh, one of the theories comes out of string theory uh the so called string theory landscape which 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 hypothesizes that there are 10 at there are at least 10 to the 500 different configurations of universes and maybe much more than that so that's what string theory says uh quantum mechanics has an interpretation called the many worlds interpretation its originator was hugh everett who was ridiculed for it and now it is one of the most widely accepted explanations or interpretations of quantum mechanics so according to the many worlds theory of in quantum mechanics every time you have you make an observation it splits the universe into two branches so every time you observe something or you make a choice the universe splits into two branches and and both uh, outcomes exist simultaneously but your consciousness exists only in one of the branches of the universe but the other branch of the universe has a copy of you with a separate consciousness who has made a different choice so for example you flip a coin and you see that it's heads but what happens when you flip a coin is that the universe splits off into two branches and in the other branch of the universe there is a copy of you who has got the result as tails so that's the simplest form of explaining uh, the 
many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. There are other interpretations as well. For example, if you were living in a simulation, the simulation hypothesis, then a supercomputer or a hypercomputer that could create a simulation that we live in could create possibly multiple such simulations, which could be looked upon as a multiverse. So there are many origins, there are many uh, possible configurations of this multiverse hypothesis, but it is simply a hypothesis. It is not a theory. So a hypothesis is an educated guess. It is a possible explanation of something, but a hypothesis needs to be supported by, by experimental and observational evidence for it to become an accepted theory. So the multiverse is merely a hypothesis because we cannot test whether there are multiple universes. We cannot even leave our own planet. We cannot even leave our solar system. So how will we leave our universe and test whether there are, whether there are other universes out there? So as of now, there is no way to test the multiverse hypothesis. That's why it is merely a hypothesis and not a theory. So that's what is, uh, it's all about. So there is no proof. It doesn't have any proof thus, thus far. It's just a hypothesis. It, as of now, it belongs in the realm of philosophy, not of science. Okay, one more question, and then I will take some live questions. So this is by Ritwik. What do you think about India's foreign policy about China? India has repeated the same mistakes over and over. Indian politicians and bureaucrats have never taken China seriously, lack the vision to understand China. Why are we so confused? Do you think bureaucrats are bought by China? Do you think we need young leadership in the 30s and 40s? Do you think our system is too old people centric rather than youth centric? I think that I agree with you. I think that our system is too old people centric. It needs to be more youth centric. I'm not, I'm not saying that we should get rid of the old people. Absolutely not. Old people have a great deal of experience and wisdom. What we need is we need to have a spectrum of age groups. We need to have a good amount of representation of younger people because it is the younger people who have the dynamism and the energy and the new ideas and the understanding of the new world that the old people lack. And what old people can contribute is a deeper understanding of the past and a great deal of experience. So what we need in our establishment, in our foreign policy establishment and all our institutions is a judicious, harmonious blend of elderly people, of older people and younger people. And the emphasis should always be on the future, which means younger people. So I would say that, yes, our system is too old people centric. It's too conservative. And you are right. Our system does not understand China. Thus far, all our so-called foreign policy experts and strategic experts have been experts about Pakistan. In the past, India's foreign policy was all about Pakistan, Pakistan, Pakistan. That's all you understood. That's all the media understood. That's all these experts understood. Now, after last year's events, the Galwan clash and all that, they have suddenly morphed into China experts. The fact is that they don't understand China. None of them knows how to read or write Mandarin. If you don't know how to read and write Mandarin, you cannot read Chinese texts. And everything that is written about the Chinese strategic thought, thought processes and their geopolitical outlook and worldview, all of that is written in Chinese Mandarin. 
So if you want to understand what the Chinese are thinking, what they are planning, you need to have a good understanding of the Mandarin language. And our experts, the majority of our experts lack that understanding. They don't understand that language and they don't understand China. I'm not claiming to be a China expert. I don't know Mandarin. So I am not an expert in neither are these people. And I would say that our foreign policy establishment has this great glaring drawback. First of all, it's too small. We have less than 2000 diplomats to take on the entire world. That is less than the diplomatic strength of Singapore or Japan. So for a country like India, which supposedly aspires to great power status, you need a much greater foreign policy establishment. We need a greater core of diplomats and they should be drawn from, from various disciplines, not just from the Indian bureaucratic services. So I agree with you that there's a great deal of reform that is needed and that reform needs to happen very quickly because as of now, we do not understand China at all. Right, so I think... Uh, I've taken about 20 questions. Let me take a few live questions and then we will wrap up. So I'll just take a look at uh, the comments. Uh, there's a question about the Cold War. Why does our educational system... One minute, let me find that. Wow, there's a lot of questions. Thank you, everybody, for all the questions. Uh, in the Srinivas Ramanujan... Higgs boson, I spoke about that. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes, Balu, I have <laughs> I have spoken about the Higgs boson, so I'll take a different question. Mm. Okay, let's take this one. Please explain quantum entanglement theory in layman's language. So quantum entanglement theory is that is a theory that two particles are intrinsically entangled, are intrinsically linked together, and, the, and they remain linked together no matter where they are in the universe. So think about it like this in layman's language. Let's say you have a pair of shoes. So you have a left shoe and a right shoe. Now you pack these separately. You send one shoe to your friend in Moscow and you send the other shoe to your friend in Chennai. Now, let's say the shoe reaches Chennai before it reaches Moscow and your friend in Chennai receives the package and he or she opens the package and finds that it is the right shoe. So what does it tell you about the person who is in Moscow? What are they going to find? They're going to find a left shoe in their package. So the moment you open the contents of one package, you immediately know the contents of the other package. Now, instead of Moscow, let's say I spend, I sent that, uh, that package to the Andromeda galaxy. Let's say I was able to send it within the next one hour, hypothetically. And then if I open the package over here in Chennai, then I will know immediately that the package in Andromeda has what configuration of shoe. So this information seems to travel faster than the speed of light. And this is just a layman's uh, picture of how it is, but particles are entangled. And the problem is that until we observe a particle, we have no way of knowing what state it is in. Because if a particle has stayed up and stayed down, then before you observe it, it is in both states at the same time. It's in a superposition of two states. 
So both entangled particles are in superpositions. Neither of these particles knows what the other particle state is. And yet once you observe the state of one particle, even if the other particle is a hundred light years away, you will immediately know the state of that particle as well. So the information seems to travel at least 10,000 times faster than the speed of light. And we know that uh, there is a that this is a true effect. It's not. Uh, Einstein was of the of the uh, opinion that this spooky action at a distance is just an illusion. There is a deeper law, which which restores the causal structure of the universe. But that is not the case. We have now realized that it is truly spooky action at a distance, and we don't understand how it happens. The only plausible explanation that we have of entanglement as of now is what is known as super determinism. And that is a theory that everything has been determined from the very beginning. So every particle knows what's going to happen. So it's like saying that everything is written in the fate. You know? So that is what super determinism essentially is. It is that every future outcome of the, of the universe has been determined in advance. So that is one explanation of quantum entanglement. So it is one of the mysteries of quantum mechanics. One of the one of the many mysteries. Right. Let me take another question. Okay. Why do we dream? <clears throat> well, dreaming is related to the mystery of consciousness. We don't know how the brain works. We don't know how the mind works. We don't know what consciousness is. And yet when we sleep, when we are supposedly unconscious, we have these dreams. So it is, and once again, sleep itself is a great mystery. We don't know why we sleep. And one of the strange things is that when you have these neural networks that mimic the structure of the brain, then you find that even the neural networks need a period of rest. Otherwise, they start outputting garbage information. So if a neural network has been running for, let's say, 12, 12 to 14 hours, you will find that it needs to undergo a period of rest. Otherwise, the results that it is outputting become garbage. So even neural networks need what seems to be sleep. And do they dream as well? We don't know. So this is one of the great uh, mysteries that science is currently grappling with. There is so much that we don't know. So that's what it is, right? So it's part of the mystery of consciousness. Why do we dream? As of now, we do not know. There are a number of theories. Maybe the brain is processing the information it has acquired during the daytime. Maybe it is rearranging memories. And that manifests as dreams because of the connections of the neurons and the connections of various memories together. So these are all speculations. These are theories. We do not have any proof as of now about these uh, about about why this actually happens. Okay, let me take one more question. Okay, this is by Anik. My thoughts on terraforming Mars. How much progress has been made on this front? My thoughts on setting up a base on the moon, tapping asteroids as a source of energy. Well, to terraform Mars, we would first need to get to Mars, and that is not going to happen anytime immediately. Uh, maybe by the 2030s, we may send the first missions to Mars. Uh, that is, the Americans will do it. Elon Musk has plans. NASA has plans. So the Americans will most likely 
try doing this in the 2030s. The Russians may have plans. They may be working with, with the Chinese in this matter. So the first tentative baby steps will be taken most likely in the 2030s about reaching Mars. Now, in order to terraform a planet like Mars, you would need a substantial human presence on Mars. You would need tens of thousands of people and you would need to transfer a great deal of equipment to Mars, either transfer, transfer it there or to build new equipment on Mars using the local resources. So you would need to do mining, mining on Mars. You would need to extract metals and other resources, create machines and create settlements. And then you can think about terraforming the planet. Now, terraforming Mars would basically what, what's, what we are thinking is that we should escape the Earth and go to Mars because we have ruined Earth. We have messed it up very badly. My, my, my point is that if we have messed up the Earth so badly, what is the, I mean, what is the possibility that we'll not do the same on Mars? We're going to have the same patterns of behavior that we have here on Earth. So what we'll do is we, we will mess up the Earth, then we will escape to Mars, then we will mess up Mars as well, and then where do we go? <laughs> so that is the dilemma that we are currently grappling with because the system that we are currently uh, following, the system of this, this relentless per pursuit of endless growth, of endless GDP growth, we think that we can have endless GDP growth on a limited planet, on a planet with limited resources, it is only going to end up in disaster. So this system, this capitalist exploitative system, which exploits the environment needs to be abandoned for something that is better. I am not advocating Marxism or socialism or communism. I'm just saying that we need a better system than what, what, what we are currently following. So, that's what we need to do. Terraforming Mars, it may be possible in the future. I would not want us to nuke Mars. We have ice caps on the poles of Mars. Uh, Elon Musk says we should nuke them to quickly bring about a radical change in the, in the atmosphere of Mars. I would be strongly against that. We should not take actions that we have no way of reversing. So as of now, very little progress has been made about this. My thoughts on setting up a base on the moon, it's, it's going to happen very soon. It's going to happen in this decade. The first steps will be taken by the Americans, most likely in 2024. The Chinese are already making progress. They are sending probes to the moon. India has been trying it. Uh, our last mission was a partial success, Chandrayaan-2. Our lander could not make it in one piece. We're going to try it again maybe this year or the next year. So the Americans are, gonna, are going to have a base on the moon by 24, 25, definitely in this decade, most likely the Chinese and the Russians too. And I hope that the Indian government also takes uh, steps because we cannot afford to be left behind in the space race. What's going to happen is that in the 21st century, the nations, the two or three nations that are going to be at the forefront of space exploration are going to be the two or three nations that are going to lead the world. That's It's as simple as that. So if India has any aspiration or any ambition of being a global power and to have a sovereign identity of its own, then it needs to strongly focus on space exploration because the technological spin-offs 
that come out of space exploration are extremely useful in geopolitical applications. So that's what needs to happen. Tapping asteroids as a source of energy. Well, asteroids will be mined for metals, most likely. Uh, many asteroids are metallic in nature. Iron asteroids, nickel also is found and various other metals as well. So asteroid mining will happen eventually in the next coming decades, definitely in the 21st century if we don't mess things up. So it will the asteroid belt will be tapped for metals and other resources, not necessarily for energy. Energy will come from the moon because the, the lunar dust contains great amounts of a rare isotope of helium, which is not found on Earth. And that will be the fuel for future nuclear reactors. So the moon is going to be a great source of energy. And that's why there is this great moon race going on right now. So, so that's about it. I know you have lots more questions, but I think I'm going to stop here. It's been an hour and a half. I will be back tomorrow, same time, same channel. And I will take up more of your questions. So thank you very much for all of your questions. I truly, really appreciate it. Thank you from the bottom of my, of my heart. And I will continue doing this regularly. I will take up your questions again tomorrow. So that's it for, for today. I wish you all a good night, a good day wherever you are. And I will see you tomorrow. Thank you. Bye-bye.